0: Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this beautiful day. Thank you for the gift of Christian community and for the gift of your holy word. We ask your blessing upon us as we study Jeremiah. We pray that you would open us up and um, break down what needs to be broken down, uproot what needs to be uprooted, and plant what needs to be planted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his share of property among the people there. When he reached the Benjamin gate, a sentinel there named Irijah, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, arrested the prophet Jeremiah, saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, that is a lie. I am not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah would not listen to him and arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. The officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of the secretary, Jonathan, for it had been made a prison. Thus, Jeremiah was put in the cistern house in the cells and remained there many days. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be handed over to the king of Babylon. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not, will not come against you and against this land? Now please hear me, my lord king, be good enough to listen to my plea, and do not send me back to the house of the secretary Jonathan to die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard, and a loaf of bread was given him daily from the Baker Street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Now Shephatiah son of Natan, Gedaliah, son of Pasher, Jukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, those who stay in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But those who go out to the Chaldeans shall live. They shall have their lives as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord. This city shall surely be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, This man ought to be put to death because he is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of his people, but their harms. King Zedekiah said, Here he is, he is in your hands, for the king is powerless against you. So they took Jeremiah and threw him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. Now there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Ebed-Mulek, the Ethiopian, a eunuch in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king happened to be sitting at the Benjamin gate, so ebon melech left the king's house and spoke to the king. My lord king, these men have acted wickedly in all they did to the prophet Jeremiah by throwing him into the cistern to die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ibn melech the Ethiopian, take three men with you from here and pull the prophet Jeremiah up from the cistern before he dies. So eben Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe of the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah and the cistern by ropes. Then eben Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, just put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up by the ropes and pulled him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guards. In the ninth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, in the tenth month, King Nebuchadrezzar of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. When Jerusalem was taken, all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate nergal Sherezer, Samgar-Nebo, Sarsakim the Rabzaris, nergal Sherezer, the Rab-Mag, with all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. When King Zedekiah of Judah and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to King Nebuchadrezzar of Babylon at Riblah in the hand of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. Also, the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters to take him to Babylon the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people and broke and broke down the walls of Jerusalem then Nebuzaradan the captain of the guard exiled to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city those who had deserted to him and the people who remained Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he may ask you.
0: All right, wonderful. So as we get to the beginning of Jeremiah 37, we're getting towards the end, and we recall that there were really two Babylonian captivities. The first happened 10 years or so prior to the last final great one, which included the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE. And so that first um, captivity and exile of people into Babylonia has taken place about nine years ago or 10 years ago. And we're right on the cusp of it happening that one last time where the houses are burned down and more people are deported and the temple is utterly destroyed. And so this was obviously a major event in the life of God's people. And, um, just as much if not more um, than the exodus um, this event kind of frames so much of the biblical literature uh, either looking forward to the destruction of the temple looking back on it prophesying about it and so it was kind of a big deal and jeremiah stands right in the middle of that tradition uh, and that historical reality as the one chosen to announce that this is what God intends to allow. And so we're um right before the big event, and Jeremiah is, you know, setting out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his share of property there. And we remember um last week when Jeremiah purchased a piece of land from his cousin Hanamel. And we talked about the symbolism of that, of what does it mean to invest in a piece of land um, right before you know that a foreign enemy is going to come in and conquer that land, that what Jeremiah was investing in was not the land, but rather in the promise of God to ultimately restore that land. Um, And now Jeremiah is going to the land of Benjamin to receive his share of the property. Uh, It could be that this event is tied to that field in Anathoth, Uh, which he buys from his cousin, Hanamel, or it could be an unrelated event. But either way, Anathoth was also um, in the land of Benjamin. And so even though the Bible doesn't really give us extensive details about Jeremiah's personal life, if I'm a betting man, I'm going to infer that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so off he goes, a good Benjamite, to get his property, his land, But when he kind of reaches one of the gates uh, of that area, there's a sentinel. Now, we remember in a previous chapter, Jeremiah 31, that these sentinels, the ones who warn people when war is at hand, who watch for war and conflict, how Jeremiah 31 says that a day will come when they call the people to worship. Um, but of course this hasn't happened yet. And of course, the significance of that prophecy is when the lion and the lamb lay down together, there's no need for these sentinels to fulfill their traditional role. But now they do, and they are not just warning the people about battle, they are inciting fear and they are arresting prophets and they are accusing Jeremiah of deserting to the Babylonians, which Jeremiah says is a bald-faced lie. But you can understand why they would um, make this assumption, because Jeremiah has not been the sort of prophet anyone likes. He has not been prophesying against the Lord's enemies, but rather against the Lord's people, saying that they need to go into exile as a result of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so, Jeremiah comes off as very pro-Babylonian. Jeremiah is not pro-Babylon, nor is Jeremiah anti-Israel. Jeremiah is pro-God. He is a prophet charged with speaking God's words, and the sentence of God is that exile is at hand. And so, Jeremiah is not popular. Uh, And so they arrest him and they beat him and they throw him in a prison in the house of a guy named Jonathan. And Jonathan has turned his home into a prison. Now, we don't know a lot about Jonathan, um, but he works for Zedekiah. If you've ever seen the show The Sopranos, you might want to think of like one of Tony Soprano's enforcers. You know, Jonathan's the guy no one wants to go see when they get in trouble, the kind of guy who says, hey, instead of, you know, decorating my house with paintings and furniture, I think I'll turn the extra rooms into a prison. And so that's who Jonathan is. And uh, off Jeremiah goes to be imprisoned in this enforcer's house. Now, one of the things I want us to pay attention to in this set of chapters is the symbolism of what happens when the people are not living aligned with the heart of God. And so there's going to be a lot of symbolism in these verses, but the first is a symbolism of the house that becomes a prison. I mean, we know what that means literally, but what does that mean figuratively? Because we all know for the Hebrews, where hospitality is like one of the main values. Think about hospitality as the chief value of ancient Israel. Where does that happen? It happens in the house. What's the opposite of hospitality? Imprisoning people, right? So the house has become a prison. Hold on to that as a symbol. Zedekiah sends for Jeremiah. And then questions him secretly. Why does he question him secretly? Because Jeremiah is not popular and because Jeremiah has been accused of being a traitor. And so this kind of reminds me of the way that Herod related to John the Baptist, where he both had him arrested and liked to listen to him privately. And Zedekiah asked Jeremiah, Has God told you anything? You know, hoping that this time Jeremiah will get the memo. And deliver some good news but the news is bad and jeremiah says what he's been saying for the last 36 chapters yep i've talked to god same plan is going to take place the king of babylon is coming and uh, my suggestion to you is to get on board with god's plan and to not resist and then after he delivers that news we have this moment of vulnerability where jeremiah says please don't make me go back to your enforcer's house. That guy is a monster. Don't make me go to Jonathan's house. And we see this vision of a very vulnerable prophet. Um, You know, doing the Lord's work, we don't feel like Superman. We feel like a very weak Clark Kent. You know, I think about Elijah who prayed for death when he was running from Jezebel. I mean, You know, Jeremiah is at the end of his rope. Don't send me back there. And Zedekiah has a bit of a soft spot and allows him to remain in the court of the guard. And he gave him bread. But remember what I said about symbolism. What happens in verse 21, the bread runs out. All of the bread of the city was gone. Okay, so are you building an image? Homes are turning into prisons. The bread of the city is all gone. Think of bread. Think of God feeding uh, his people with bread from heaven. Think of Jesus who said, I am the true bread that came down from heaven, but there is no more bread. Okay, so that's part of the bleak picture being painted. And while Jeremiah is in the court of the guard, you know, people... They just don't like him, and there are three people or four people whose names I can't pronounce. Uh, E.B. did such a good job, so we're just going to call them Frank, Amy, and Sam. Frank, Amy, and Sam, they think Jeremiah has it way too easy, and Frank, Amy, and Sam think that this is a white-collar prison where Jeremiah gets to sit around and eat bread all day, at least until the bread runs out. And, you know, that this is basically a glorified country club. So they go to Zedekiah and they say, what are you doing? This guy, he ought to be put to death. He's discouraging the army. And uh, this man is not seeking the welfare of this people. He is seeking their harm. Now, Jeremiah has already been falsely accused of deserting to the Babylonians. Now, the accusation is that he is not seeking the welfare of this people. Now, anyone who remembers our lesson on Jeremiah 21 knows that the word welfare is an important word in this book because what God tells the Israelites when they go to Babylon for that first deportation is to seek the welfare of that city where I am sending you for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. And so God has already told Jeremiah about what welfare is. Welfare is doing the will of God. It is going to be submitting to God's plan for exile, seeking the good of those who will hold them captive, and then being told, actually, your welfare is bound up with the welfare of other nations. Your welfare is bound up with Babylon. Um... You know, in South Africa, they've got this great word. You may have heard Ubuntu, which means my welfare is bound up in your welfare. This is what God tells Jeremiah. Your welfare is going to be bound up with Babylon's welfare. And in a sense, this is not a new talking point, right? Whenever God calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he says, you know, uh, go to this land that I'm going to show you. Uh, and I'm going to use you you and your descendants to bless the entire world, right? The blessing of Abram and the blessing of the world are tied up together. Um, Or as God says in Isaiah, I've given you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I've saved you to save others. Everyone's welfare is bound up together. And Jeremiah and God is seeking that welfare But because they have such a narrow view of what it looks like, they think it's all about them. They think it's about some narrow view of the kingdom of Judah having their own fortified little city and walling out the rest of the world as they live out their own religious life. Um, And Jeremiah is a threat to that. And so Zedekiah says, here he is, he's in your hands for the king is powerless against you. Um, If you don't pick up on what a coward uh, Zedekiah is being here, you are completely missing what's happening. This is the king. Zedekiah can say, I'm the king. I'll do it with Jeremiah, whatever I please. But Zedekiah says, oh, I'm powerless against you guys. And it very much reminds me of Pilate who washes his hands um, whenever he kind of is maybe a little eager to let jesus off the hook but he basically says you know what i'm just going to wash my hands of all this y'all do with him whatever you want to do with him and of course for jesus he's crucified for jeremiah uh amy frank and sam uh they take him to a cistern where there is no water but only mud and jeremiah sank in the mud so they throw him into a cistern now Let's go back to symbolism. Homes have become prisons. There's no bread. Now there's no water. Water. You're living in a cistern and you're sinking in the mud. So just kind of you picking up on what life is like symbolically. Homes become prison. No bread, no water. You're living in a pit, sinking in the mud. And of course, um, mud is probably a generous... Translation of what Jeremiah is sinking in. Uh, Because this talk is being recorded and I'm not allowed to say curse words, I can't tell you what Jeremiah might be sinking in, but maybe, just maybe, it's not only mud. Um, And Jeremiah is sinking in that mud. So we remember Zedekiah's cowardice, in contrast to that, is an Ethiopian an outsider, not just that, but a eunuch. And the law had very specific things to say about eunuchs and how welcome they were or were not in the temple of the Lord. And so, you know, this guy screams, I'm outside the covenant. Remember um, why all this is happening, by the way, the Israelites have not been faithful to the covenant. And so you got this outsider, this Ethiopian, this eunuch, In contrast to the cowardice of Zedekiah displays tremendous courage. His name is Ebed-Melech. And he basically hears what they've done to Jeremiah. He has tons of compassion and he confronts the king and basically says, what you've allowed is wicked. Now, this sort of thing wasn't done. I mean, it's still not really done today. I mean, people are scared of speaking truth to their boss, but I mean, the worst their boss is going to do is fire them. The stakes were a lot higher whenever you spoke out of turn to the king in biblical times, especially when you were an Ethiopian. And so Ebed-Melech makes himself very, very vulnerable to kind of call Zedekiah out and say, you know, like, what you've done is wrong. And to Zedekiah's credit, he basically says, "Okay, go get him out of that cistern. Let's not leave him here to sink in the mud without water. And with tremendous uh, compassion and tenderness, um, you know, they take some old rags and they figure out some kind of pulley system to get Jeremiah out of the cistern. Um, and Jeremiah goes back to the court of the guard. And so Ebed-Melech, this Ethiopian, is this wonderful example of compassion and tenderness. And again, just think about what it means for this Gentile, this outsider to be the hero. I mean, if you can say there's any heroes or any good people in the book of Jeremiah, I mean, wouldn't you think it's like another prophet, another Benjamite? No, it's Ebed-Melech, it's Ethiopian. And so I think that Jeremiah and the author, that there's a commentary once again on the welfare of Israel and Ethiopia being tied together. It's very, very subtle. You have to have eyes to see it. But this holistic vision of salvation where Israel is there to bless the world and maybe even be blessed by the world at the same time, I think that that shows up kind of crystallized in this little story of this Ethiopian eunuch who actually is faithful to the covenant. Isn't that something, right? Maybe Paul wasn't the one who invented that Gentiles could actually be part of the covenant. Maybe this Ethiopian, although technically not part of God's covenant people, is displaying what covenant faithfulness looks like. Just something to think about. So Jeremiah is back in business. He's still not popular. Zedekiah doesn't know what to do with him. Um, But um, things get bad. Uh, Eventually, uh, Jeremiah's words come true, and in comes Nebuchadnezzar and sacks Jerusalem, and uh, the Chaldeans uh, pursue them the same way the Egyptians pursued the Israelites and they overtake Zedekiah. And then in very brutal fashion, which was kind of how you did it in the day, lines everybody up and makes Zedekiah watch um, his sons die. And of course, aside from just being cruel, this was to make sure that if there was any possible successor to the throne, not anymore. And then he puts out the eyes of Zedekiah And takes him to Babylon. You know, why didn't he kill Zedekiah? Good question. But in some sense, having the last thing you see is your sons die, you know, you might prefer death over that. I think I would. Uh, And so Zedekiah does not get off easy. And um, Nebuchadnezzar basically takes a lot more people off to Babylon, destroys the city and gives the vineyards and the fields to the poor people of Judah. And it's really hard to know what's happening with the poor being left behind. You know, I think that no matter how you interpret it, the poor fare better um, than they did prior. That's an assumption I'm making. But uh, it could be that this is that great reversal in scripture where, um, you know, as Mary says, the, the poor are lifted up as the mighty are thrown down in the Magnificat. You know, this could be that the poor are finally um, owning something and being able to sustain themselves. Or it could just be good old, you know, uh, fashion economic exploitation. You know, maybe he's just going to have the poor people work the land and send, you know, his enforcers to come and collect the produce, kind of like paying taxes. So, most people go off to Babylon, the poor are left behind, and the king's sons are slaughtered. And, you know, because we're trying to read Jeremiah figuratively, not only figuratively, but one way among many. I mean, we read it historically, we read it prophetically, but we also read it figuratively where Christ is speaking, right? Um, Christ is speaking in Jeremiah, Christ is foreshadowed in Jeremiah, and so whenever you kind of have, you can have negative um, typology and positive typology, so you could say, for instance, that Ebed-Melech is a positive type of the one to come, who is Christ, who has compassion on us, who, you know, goes and intercedes to the king, his father, and who brings us out of the pit while we're sinking in the mud, right? You could say that Ebed-Melech positively points to Christ. I think that you can also see Zedekiah and the slaughter of his sons as a negative typology as um, the king's son dies as an act of punishment and as an example of exile. Meanwhile, the king of king's son dies on a cross, which is, as Isaiah says, the punishment that makes us whole to end exile. So, you know, we can kind of play around with some of those images, but whenever you have the death of a king's son in scripture, we always have to ask the question, how does that point to the death of the true king's son, which we remember every Good Friday? Um, The final piece of this chapter is that uh, king nebuchadnezzar gives command concerning jeremiah um you know look after him don't do him any harm and deal with him as he may ask you and i just want to point out this isn't outside the realm of historic possibility the babylonians would have had a well-developed intelligence network jeremiah has been prophesying for a long time Rumors have it, there's a traitor in the land who's actually speaking in our favor. And so the fact that they'd come in and actually hear about Jeremiah um, isn't as far-fetched as you might think, and reward him by saying, okay, you your call, man, what do you want to do? And Jeremiah chooses to stay behind. He'll end the book off in Egypt against his will, and we're not going to really get to that piece. I encourage you to read on. But... um Jeremiah is vindicated, his word is vindicated, and he is treated kindly by the Babylonians.